Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomza from Latrobe University. Today we are talking about the role of the Indonesian media during the 2019 elections. That election took place in an atmosphere of intense competition between incumbent president Jokowi Dodo or Jokowi, and his challenger Prabowo Subianto, just like in 2014 when the two men had faced off for the first time. But while the candidates and the antagonism between supporters of these candidates were the same, the media landscape had changed quite significantly in favor of Jokowi. So how did Jokowi secure the support from leading media moguls between 2014 and 2019? How did this support manifest itself in television coverage during the election campaign? And what are the implications of Jokowi's victory in the election for the Indonesian media going forward? In today's podcast, I will discuss these and other questions with Helena Suisa, a former journalist and now a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute where she's completing a thesis on the Indonesian media. Elena, welcome to Talking Indonesia. Hello, Dirk. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, good to have you. Um, let's start back in 2014. I've already alluded to that in the introduction. Back then, all reputable polling institutes on the day who had been conducting quick counts after the election reported that Jokowi had won this presidential election. But several media outlets actually maintained that not Jokowi, but mm -hmm. Prabowo had won. So when you were there, you were switching between different TV channels yeah. and you'd see Jokowi celebrating or Prabowo celebrating. Yes. How was this possible? Well, Prabowo Subianto and Hatta Rajasa were supported by two media entrepreneurs who were also involved in politics. The first supporter was Abu Rizal Bakri, chairman of the Golkar Party, and at that moment, also the owner of FIFA group with overseas TV1 and NTV. The second one is Harita Nusidibio, the owner of Media Nusantara Chitra Group, the parent of three free-to-air national televisions, RCTI, Global TV, and MNC TV. On the other side, Jokowi and Yusuf Kala at that time were supported by Surya Paloh, the founder of the National Democratic Party, who is also the owner of the first news channel in Indonesia, Metro TV. So, of course, on Metro TV, the electability level of Jokowi and Yusuf Kala were always very high. Mm -hmm. And strangely, on TV1, Prabowo and Hatta Rajasa were also always very high. This can happen because the two televisions use their own pollsters and they never quote from the same survey institute. So I think the difference in the results on the day of the election was actually anticipated. Mm. We know it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> it's expected. Was there any investigation into this afterwards from the sort of regulatory bodies that work with the media, like the um, press council or the broadcasting commission? I'm aware that Indonesian Broadcasting Commission issued a warning with a threat to TV1 and Metro TV, so not only TV1, but also to Metro TV, mm -hmm. to not giving a recommendation to extend their license permit due to what happened on the election day. So, of course, at the beginning of 2014, both the Indonesian Broadcasting Commission and the Press Council had issued many statements that broadcasters 
have to maintain their independence and neutrality during the election season. But according to Indonesian Independent Journalist Alliance, from a total of almost 60 election-related violations committed by televisions, almost all of them were only sentenced to administrative sanctions. What has changed then between 2014 and 2019? To what extent can we see this politicization still being reflected in the media? Yeah, I think this is all about in which camp the media owners are. Some people might refer to the media in America when talk, when we talk about media owners or media and politics, who commonly show their support in the presidential election. But in the United States, media support for presidential candidates is based on values and ideas that shape media identity. While in Indonesia, I think support was born because of the interest of the media owners who also practice politics. So, not ideas let alone values. The only pure loyalty the media has is to the owner. It is always the interest of the owner which then forms the pattern of support for the presidential candidates. Mm. Haritanu changed sides. Back in 2014, he was behind Prabowo. Mm. In 2019, he was in the Jokowi camp. Do you know how Jokowi managed to get the support of Haritanu for the 2019 election? Well, Haritanu is a very interesting guy, isn't he? <laughs> he initially joined Nasdem, if you remember, then moved to Hanura before he finally established his own party, Perindo. There have been allegations that the switch was under duress. In 2017, Haritanu was named a suspect for intimidating an attorney general's office official who was investigating allegation of corruption related to a tax refund that Haritanu Link company Mobile 8 uh, Telecom received in 2009. So not long after investigations began, Haritanu then declared that Prindo would back Joko Widodo in 2019 elections. I have noted that there have been no developments in the intimidation case since. Mm-hmm. So... We all know, even though we have the same two presidential candidates in 2014 and 2019, as you said, the map of owners' political support is no longer the same. While there was vigorous competition between media moguls and media companies in 2014, Mm -hmm. in 2019, all the major media moguls have fallen in behind Joko Widodo and Maruf Amin. All right, let's turn to the campaign itself. Um, I'd be interested to hear how these political affiliations that media owners clearly have, how this is reflected in how the campaign is being reported. As we remember, these were two campaigns where the supporters were quite polarized, uh, lots of smear campaigns going on in social media. So how did this work out in the mainstream media? Can you, perhaps with reference to the TV stations owned by people like Haritanu, Aburiza Bakri, Soyapalo, how these political interests by the owners were reflected in the election coverage? All right, let's start with MNC Group first. Hmm. Since Perindo supported Jokowi, the editorial policy within the MNC integrated newsroom has been changed. The whole team was asked to make room for the two candidates, but giving priority to Joko Widodo and Maruf Amin. So it means if there is news about Prabowo, there must also be news about Jokowi. 
if on that day Jokowi had no activities as a candidate, they should at least air his activities as president. If there isn't any, then that means news about Prabowo shouldn't be aired either. Mm-hmm. But if there is Jokowi's news, but there is no news on Prabowo or Sandia, that's okay. Jokowi <laughs> news <laughs> continues to air. And the information from my informant was in fact consistent with the results of the content analysis that I took from news program from two MNC televisions, Global TV and RCTI, from 10 to 17 of April 2019. So shortly before the actual election. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where the news about Jokowi were recorded during those periods, 31 items in total, Prabowo 22 items, while the news about Perindo and Haritan was 48 items. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, from the same sample from 10 to 17 of April 2019, I took also three news programs on Metro TV, Metro Siang, Metro Today, and Metro Malang. Almost all news in related to the election contain and about Jokowi's campaign only. Now, perhaps the interesting case is TV One, right? Because Bakri, back in 2014, was very heavily, actively involved in politics, Golka chairman back then. In 2019, he was no longer chairman of the party, and his party had switched allegiance from Prabowo to Gorka. Yeah. So I'd be curious to hear now, how did TV1 report on the election campaign in 2019? Yeah. Again, I ran the same content of analysis um, from 7 to 17 of April 2019 from TV1 morning news, afternoon news, and evening news. Surprisingly, the results showed equally 20 news, 21, sorry, 21 news about Jokowi's campaign and also 21 news about Prabowo. Only one news about Golkar. What is interesting is that despite supporting Jokowi, I think TV1 was trying to make room for Prabowo. Mm -hmm. So it can be seen through the exclusive interview of Prabowo and Ustad Abdul Somad at that time. One of Prabowo's supporters from the Islamist camp. Mm -hmm. I think what TV1 did was a compromise between the interest to accommodate a niche audience that was not accommodated based on the 2019 media constellation map versus media owners shifted political preference. The station tried to maintain his 2014 audience which was proven to bring quite high rating and share points and make money. But they surely know that this time Abu Rizal Bakri, who was no longer a chairman of Golkar Party, and also Golkar Party now is behind Jokowi. Yeah, interesting. You've worked as a journalist before. So based on your own experience, perhaps, and reflecting now on your research, what do these ownership structures and the resulting pressures out of that mean for journalists working in these media organizations? Well, first of all, I'm very sorry (laughs) for the journalists now. (laughs) I have experienced almost the same thing back in 2004, I think, when the gold car has uh, had the first convention at the moment. I was working as an uh, ANTV journalist, so ANTV owned by Abu Rizal Bakri. And at that moment, he's competing against Surya Paloh, because Surya Paloh is still in Golkar Party. 
Yeah, back then they were both uh, at the convention trying to get yes. the presidential candidacy from Gorka. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's pretty funny because we are from ANTV. We only interview Abu Rizal Bakri, mm-hmm. the owner of our media. While we are face-to-face with <laughs> Metro TV, mm-hmm. they only interview and air uh, Surya Paolo. But I think for now, the ownership structure has been very influential to the content of the news beyond that, because now, for example, MNC has four free-to-air TV stations under uh, the group. So a more serious challenge was experienced by fellow journalists who work at MNC group, because the centralized ownership structure went down into the newsroom level. So since 2015, all TV stations under MNC Group gave their reporters, camera persons, and assignment editors. So basically, the news gathering division to be under the integrated newsroom called MNC Media Gathering. They applied a new structure and new workflows. It is the responsibility and the task of this integrated newsroom to provide news items to all TV stations. So one team reports and fulfills requests from four different outlets. This is bad for the diversity of information that the citizens should receive. As you can imagine, the content of the stations under MNC Group will be relatively the same, including if there is a specific message from the owner that needs to be sent. The structural convergence has made the newsroom relatively easy to canalize the messages that are related to the owners. There is something more in MNC, actually. Since the integration of news gathering division, they also established a dedicated division named Proxus, or Program Kusus, or Special Program. Mm -hmm. The main duty of this desk is to produce news stories about Perindo, or Haritanus political activities, or stories that are in line with owners' preferences. This is why I said I'm very sorry for my fellow journalists, because they cannot do anything about it. So at least one story produced by this division is mandatory to be allocated in each news program of all TV every day. The examples of stories produced by this team are ceremonials about Perindo and Haritanu, and any stories that favor his interests. The existence of this special program desk also explains, I think, the high number of news coverage on Haritanu and Perindo. Well done, special program <laughs> desk. So that kind of pressure, they cannot do anything about it, the fellow journalists. In Metro TV, some journalists were also facing a pretty tough times when, for example, the owner through the managers, wanted the program to be free from Prabowo-related content. So no content about Prabowo at all. Mm. But after a very long and hot discussion, my colleagues told me, they agreed to apply some rundown strategy. Mm-hmm. So Djokovic's stories came first, and Prabowo will be in the later segment. Mm-hmm. Or they play with the format. Interference in the job is one thing, and that's um, worrying enough. But in the context of broader political developments in Indonesia recently, where there's a lot of talk about increasing illiberalism, the government tightening public space and the scope for public discussion, etc., how much further 
do the restrictions on journalists go, apart from interference? Are there regular cases of intimidation or are there... Are there taboo topics that they're not supposed to report on outside the sort of campaign issues? I think the first intimidation comes from the newsroom itself. But from a number of reports and cases that I have followed, the amount of violence and intimidation against journalists in Indonesia is still happening. Mm. And the amount is also not small. Mm. I remember, I think, there were 75 cases last year from 2017 to 2018 against journalists recorded by Independence uh, Journalist Alliance. There were 26 cases of violence by the police against journalists in January to August 2019, not counting the last cases of violence in the coverage of the demonstration on September, last September 2019. One of them was intimidation experienced by Compass.com journalists. And in Jayapura, Papua, there was three journalists who were obstructed by the police when covering the action of Papuan students. I also see the tendency of some good investigative reports that do not receive proper appreciation and protection. The protection and appreciation that I mean here can be as simple as respecting the work of the press by following the rules stated in the press law. It is very sad and ironic when a minister of agriculture brought a civil lawsuit against Tempo magazine regarding the coverage of Amran and Isam sugar investigation. Even though this issue had actually been tried in the press council and was completed last October, they still went to civil lawsuit. In its decision, the press council recommended Tempo magazine to publish the right of reply from the Ministry of Agriculture proportionately. And I was very surprised when I read the news yesterday that Tempo magazine was sued with claims for compensation for of up to 100 billion rupiah. Such practices in my opinion, are another form of intimidation against journalists too. So instead of physical intimidation mm. from the police, yeah. the structure-wise, outside the newsroom, mm. this abandon of the press law is also a different form of intimidation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And another law um, that has been used by the government to silence critics in the last few years is the um, the controversial information and electronic transactions law. Have journalists had to adjust their practices out of sort of fear that this law could be used against them? Hmm. I think, yeah, um, according to SafeNet Records, the Southeast Asia Freedom of Expression Network, there have been at least 16 cases of criminal prosecution of journalists and media using the ITE law. Last year, there were eight criminal cases with the ITE law against three journalists and five media. This trend is very vulnerable to being used to silence press freedom, I think. It's a shortcut because if you follow the press law, then if you have a dispute regarding to journalistic work, you come to the press council, you have a discussion, you clarify the facts with another facts. By using the right of reply as mandated by the press law, 
parties who feel disadvantaged by a journalistic work can provide open explanation. The chilling effect due to criminalization using the ITE law could happen to journalists and online media, and it's happening. So as a result, journalists and online media will most likely avoid sensitive issues such as environmental crimes or corruption or sexual violence, not only because critical news is vulnerable to ensnare them, but also because superficial and sensational news is actually more in demand with less effort. Mm. So at the end of the day, it is again the public who will not get actual and accurate information. Instead, they only have like sensational news, nothing about public interest there, nothing about public policy because of this enactment of uh, ITA law. Yeah. And the public still does rely very heavily on television news, I think, to get information about political events. Mm -hmm. But more and more people are resorting to social media to get their feed on political news, which has both obviously pros and cons. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So how do you see that rise of social media, the role of social media in complementing television news media as a source of political information in Indonesia? Difficult question. (laughs) 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 So I think with television coverage mostly one-sided in this context, there has been a much more vibrant and interesting debate online and on social media. The public have had to seek diversity of content online rather than through broadcast media, of course. And um, the battle is more diverse there, even though it is mixed with hoax and fake news. But there is another kind of battle also there. There has been wars between supporters of the two camps, all together with cyber soldiers. We have buzzers. We have boats. And um, yet there are also other camps of academics, activists. So it is true that there is a bigger tendency that we are creating our own bubble in social media. But still, in terms of diversity of information, the social media can be an alternative platform, I think. And I remember prior to the election, for example, we can see some anti-mainstream narratives like Goldput that was more seriously discussed on social media than in any other platform. Um, Social media also gives a space for some content that can't be screened on television due to the political constraints and its ownership issues. Back to the 2019 election, after a series of independent screening in hundreds of places inside and outside Indonesia, the documentary Sexy Killers finally used social media as its distribution platform. It was launched on 13th of April. And um, of course, because the documentary is showing the links between Indonesian coal and energy companies and the country's political elite, including not only one, but both pairs of Indonesia's presidential candidates, there is no way this kind of story would be aired in any Indonesian televisions.
on 14 day or only four days after it was released on YouTube, there were 11 million views of sexy killers. And I think it has successfully raised antithesis of mainstream media narratives. You mentioned fake news and hoaxes as, you know, a central element of social media these days. And that's obviously one of the drawbacks. The government is really struggling with that aspect of social media. I think they're, they're probably very unhappy with some of the content that's um, circulating there anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But they're also yeah, trying to really clamp down on this spread of fake news and hoaxes. I think most um, prominently what did this come to the attention of a, of a broader audience also overseas. Um, recently, when after the election, there were the riots in Jakarta. And then also we had the incidents in Papua, of yes. course, um, when suddenly social media was shut down, no photos could be uploaded anymore. Mm -mm. So that seemed like a really exaggerated reaction. But the problem of fake news and hoaxes is real, right? Yes. It is a real problem. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is the best way of dealing with this? First of all, governments move to restrict internet access or internet throttling when it happened to Jakarta uh, riots um, and also internet shutdown in Papua was a bad precedent for the right to freedom of expression in Indonesia because the problem is when they decided to do internet throttling or internet shutdown, there is no clear of parameter why they finally decide to impose that uh, policy mm. and there is no time restrictions like how long they will impose that. Even if they have clear parameters, it's still, I mm. think it's still uh, against the, um, the freedom of expression in Indonesia. I think what the government should do is to investigate and take firm action against the perpetrators of the spread of hoax and provocators of hate speech rather than restricting access to Indonesian internet users. I think one way to overcome this information in Indonesia is to improve the reputation of mainstream media, in this case television. I am sure that if our mainstream media is not partisan and does not use public frequency for the benefit of the owner, the information will be of higher quality. If the Indonesian Broadcasting Commission is more serious, decisive and daring to impose sanctions, and fix Indonesian television content. I believe our television will be stronger and become a reliable sources of information because it serves the public interest. This information is not a new thing and the history of the spread of this information has begun long ago. The problem now is where we can find the most reliable information. Seeing the current condition of our televisions, I think the audience really understands that the content is almost uniform or one-sided or completed unreported and is full of the interests of the owners, so they have to go to other sources of information that they think are more trustworthy. Unfortunately, there is so much information out there. Too much, so that if we don't carefully identify the source, we will be trapped in the vortex of disinformation continuously. So I hope the condition of our mainstream media can be improved. Well, if the private television seems difficult to repair, I put my hopes in the public broadcast media. We still have TVRI. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> and I think in addition, of course, media literacy also needs to be continued. This role is mostly filled by activists and friends, uh, such as Aji, SafeNet, and RemoTV. Yet in my opinion, there is an obligation for academics to fulfill this role as well. We have a new government in place now, of course, since the last election. Are you expecting any new policies in regards to the media from the new government? We have a new minister in charge of the relevant ministry. Or do you think the trend that we have seen in, in the first term of Jacobi, which was a bit worrying in many ways, will continue? Yeah. As we know, Jokowi appointed Johnny G. Plate, and I think he is a stranger in the world of communication and information. One thing I remember clearly about him when I heard his name, that he also appears close to the veteran oil and gas actor Risa Khalid, and um, their closeness was even revealed in the Panama paper. Johnny also works outside the energy sector, for example, as a commissioner of PT Indonesia Air Asia and group CEO of the palm oil company, uh, Bima Palma Nugraha. So in short, his track record shows one thing. Johnny does not have the competence needed for the position of a minister of communication and information. The lack of this track record makes me doubt that public interest and important issues that are handled by this ministry will be fulfilled. I think sharing the political cake is the most reasonable reason for appointing an incompetent minister. I try to be optimistic when I remember Jokowi in his Nawachita once briefly said that his government will rearrange ownership of broadcast frequencies, which are part of the lives of many people, so there is no monopoly or control by a group of people of the broadcast industry. However, this spirit was never realized. Instead, he enjoyed the support of partisan media such as Metro TV and MNC Group. So I said it is worrying because as if it was not enough to accommodate the aspiration of the oligarchs in the first period of his presidency. In the second period, Jokowi instead gave a ration in his cabinet for those who had affiliations with the broadcast industry. Aside from Johnny, we know Jokowi also appointed Angela Tanusudibio to become Deputy Minister of Tourism and Creative Economy. He also appointed Eric Tohir, as Minister of BUMN, and Wisnutama as Minister of Tourism and Creative Economy. With such a situation, how can a minister with an incompetent background and yet has interest-rich political and business affiliations ensure the fulfillment of citizens' rights in the realm of communication and information? How likely is he going to bring order to his party's leader and his ministerial colleagues? Sorry, I can be more optimistic than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was hoping you'd 
be able to finish on an optimistic note, but <laughs> I know it's hard. I think most assessments of the cabinet have been rather bleak, rather negative. Um, so I'm not surprised by your I'm um, sorry. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you very much anyway for your insights, Helena. Um, that was Helena Suisa from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again for the next episode on the 28th of November. Finally, as ever, don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and until next time.